the ex-worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A twice-monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action. For everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. Welcome to the 12th episode of The Ex-Worker. Today we're going to continue our exploration of fascism and resistance to it, with a bit more about the exciting history of anarchist anti-fascists, and sharing a free speech FAQ for rebutting free speech defenses of fascist rallies. We'll also have a special chopping block with anti-fascist movie reviews, plus an exciting interview with a member of the Occupied London Collective about fascism and resistance in Greece as well as listener feedback, news, events, the whole nine yards. I'm Alanis. And I'm Clara. And we'll be your hosts. Visit our website at crimethink.com slash podcast for more information about all the things we discuss on today's episode. And get in touch with any feedback or suggestions via podcast at crimethink.com. Or you can call us at 202-59-NO-WORK. 202-596-6975 or rating us on iTunes. Let's get started. We'll begin with the hot wire, our look at resistance going on across the globe. Clara, what's in the news? On indigenous Mi'kmaq territory in New Brunswick, eastern Canada, a blockade erected by the El Sapogtog First Nation to prevent a fracking corporation from despoiling their land was attacked by police, who arrested 40. Protesters torched five police cars and continued the blockade as solidarity actions erupted across Canada. As we go to press, over 25 refugees entered their 11th day of a hunger strike taking place in front of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany. They're demanding that their asylum requests be granted in the face of an increasingly restrictive and racist immigration and asylum system. Police have repeatedly harassed the strikers, taking their supplies and preventing them from erecting minimal support structures to protect themselves from heavy rains. Several strikers have already been hospitalized as a result. Solidarity demos are taking place around the country. To follow the strike and learn more about refugee resistance in Germany, visit refugeestruggle.org. Meanwhile, 191 migrants in a detention center in Lindsay, Ontario, went on hunger strike in late September. Some are still on strike, while many face deportation or solitary confinement for their resistance. Find out updates on the strikers and how to show solidarity at endimmigrationdetention.wordpress.com. Ecological news, as per usual, is grim. The Overseas Development Institute has released a report concluding that Extreme weather could be the most important cause of poverty. The report states how climate change is increasing and its effects keep people poor, canceling progress on poverty reduction. It criticizes first world relief efforts for being reactionary rather than preventative and for prioritizing middle income countries. Of course, living in a capitalist economy in which profit rather than human need forms the basis of resource distribution is the most important cause of poverty. That's why so-called relief efforts fit this charitable, reactive model rather than catalyzing a reorganization of society along lines of mutual aid. It's a common strategy of ruling elites to blame so-called natural disasters for the problems fundamentally caused by human injustice. As we've seen from Katrina and Sandy to famines and typhoons, 
We're glad that this report focuses attention on how destruction of the environment and global warming must be halted to alleviate human misery. However, we're not thrilled that it misses the key point, which is that capitalism is the reason that millions are poor in the first place, while a few roll in wealth, and why ecocidal development continues to threaten all life on Earth. Meanwhile, the strongest typhoon to hit Japan in 10 years brought over five inches of rain, burst riverbanks, and caused mudslides, killing at least 17, and flooding the infamous Fukushima nuclear power plant, though officials say the floodwater pumped out of the contaminated water storage tanks was within safe radiation limits. In Yuyao, eastern China, protesters threw stones and overturned police vehicles after the government failed to offer flood relief in the wake of Typhoon Fital. Protesters bloodied by police after attacking the Communist Party's offices were encouraged to express their rational demands at an appropriate time and in a reasonable manner. And researchers in the UK report that only 21% of children feel a connection with nature. Authors of a recent study say that nature is not perceived as interesting or engaging. In some cases, it is perceived as a dirty or unsafe thing. Children may not like the nature, but they sure do seem to like the riot. In Brazil, young anarchists join with striking school teachers to fight police in massive demonstrations in Rio de Janeiro. In response to state and media efforts to scapegoat them, the State Union of Education Professionals voted in their assembly to declare unconditional support for the Black Bloc. Woo! We're confident that our incisive coverage has convinced you long ago to delete your Facebook page. But just in case, yet more revelations from NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden indicate that the NSA collects email contact lists in a way that's illegal in the U.S. by making deals with foreign companies and intelligence agencies. Data centers in other countries operated by companies like Google and, you guessed it, Facebook, have provided the U.S. government with as many as 700,000 email address books in a single day. On October 19th, demonstrations in Nantes marked the one-year anniversary of the French government's attempts to expel squatters from the Zone à Défendre, or ZAD, a land occupation resisting the planned construction of an airport in western France. An anti-fascist update. Four Russian anarchists arrested months ago in Kazan for allegedly participating in a militant confrontation with fascists have finally been released, but face trial soon and are in need of support. You can find links to the Moscow Anarchist Black Cross support page via our website. Three days of occupation and protests by Romanian villagers successfully forced oil giant Chevron to abandon plans to begin test drilling for hydrofracking in the area. While local residents have erected a month-long blockade against a Monsanto plant under construction in Malvinas, Argentina. 250 demonstrators in Arizona chained themselves to buses, carrying immigrants to deportation centers, and blocked an entrance to an ICE facility, protesting the repressive deportation program called Operation Streamline, and the Obama administration's refusal to take effective action to stop the racist assault on immigrant communities. And finally, the ex-worker extends its congratulations to Earth First, whose logo has been listed as a terrorist symbol according to a declassified army training manual. Other highlights of this manual include portraying the Animal Liberation Front and Al-Qaeda on the same page as UK terror threats, and listing the Palestinian flag as a terrorist symbol. 
The ex-worker demands to know what we have to do to get our Humble logo listed in such prestigious company. Making podcasting a threat again. And now it's time for listener feedback. (whistles) Okay, okay. We got some updates from an anti-fascist organizer on the East Coast recently, following up on some of the trends we discussed in our last episode. They want to encourage everyone to come out to protest the Montana-based National Policy Institute, NPI, at their conference at the Ronald Reagan Building in Washington, D.C. on October 26, 2013. NPI uses the illusion of academic legitimacy to promote racist hatred, releasing studies calling for mass deportation of immigrants, plotting to make the Republican Party entirely white, and advocating for the European world to adopt racial eugenics policies. Speakers will include members of the Council of Conservative Citizens and the KKK. They also had this to say, It seems like there's been a worrisome upswing in fascist organizing in general recently. When the KKK's planned march on Gettysburg was thwarted two weeks ago by the government shutdown, they went and leafleted in downtown Frederick, Maryland instead. NPI and American Renaissance now have their very own Hitler Youth-style auxiliary, called the Traditionalist Youth Network, or Trad Youth. They've been advocating what I'm tempted to call fascism without adjectives, calling for a big tent, pro-white movement, and courting more openly extremist racist organizations than the suit-and-tie crowd is usually comfortable with. On their website, in an essay called I Hate Freedom, I swear I'm not making this up, Matthew Heimbeck writes, Whether you are a Christian authoritarian like myself, a constitutionalist, a fascist, a national socialist, or whatever stripe of white traditionalist, just acknowledge that it's time to throw off the shackles of the poisoned American mindset. Time for a new unity within our folk and new ideas for a new age. He recently spoke at an event organized by the neo-Nazi nationalist socialist movement in Kansas City and justified it by claiming the NSM had an impressive record of street activism and grassroots organizing. Last week, on October 9th, in Terre Haute, Indiana, at their protest against a talk by anti-racist author Tim Wise, Heimbeck and fellow racist student Matthew Parrott held down and beat up an anti-racist who they allege attacked them first. Parrott is scheduled to speak on a panel about new directions for activism at the MPI conference. These assholes are looking to combine the violent thuggishness of neo-Nazis with the polished legitimacy of academic racism, so I consider them the most important threat for Antifa is to be dealing with at the moment. Thanks for the updates. This is definitely a disturbing trend, and one we should watch carefully. We want to urge everyone who can to turn out for the demo against the NPI conference next weekend, and keep posted to websites like One People's Project for updates on how to shut down these scumbags. We also want to point out the kind of rhetorical strategies these people are using, and how similar they can sound to radical or even anarchist discourses. Talking about how traditional American values are bankrupt, appeals to scene unity, throwing off shackles, street activism, grassroots organizing. This effort to parallel or appropriate radical discourse makes it all the more crucial for us to take militant, anti-fascist stances and actions as anarchists. We've been getting a lot of great feedback from you recently, and we'll do our best to respond by email or on the show as we can. Keep it coming to podcast at crimethink.com. 
And now it's time for more entries from the Crime Think Contradictionary. This episode is brought to you by Border and Bailout. Border. To create a community where people share no real connection or common interest, establish a boundary and accuse outsiders of violating it. This accusation implies that before the violation, the rightfully included lived together in purity, tranquility, and belonging. There was no such thing as America before immigrants, for example, but you'd never know it listening to racists and nationalists. It is common sense that boundaries create transgressors, but one might as easily say that the invention of transgressors creates boundaries, which would be unthinkable without them. Bailout. In the words of Benito Mussolini, fascism should rightly be called corporatism, as it is the merger of corporate and government power. This neologism did not take off, however, probably because fascism is not the only political system premised on such a merger. For more explorations of the war in every word, visit crimethink.com slash contradictionary. Deep in the Bolivian jungle, in a little village called San Buenaventura, next to a row of wooden shacks, sits a small, unremarkable brick house. In it lives an elderly man who has spent over 70 years fleeing or fighting state power. In a 2008 interview with the BBC, 87-year-old Antonio Garcia Barón described a life of resistance that took him from the anarchist militias of the Spanish Civil War to a Nazi concentration camp, to an anarchist community among the Guarani people of the Amazon rainforest. He came to Bolivia on the advice of French anarchist Gaston Laval, saying, I asked him for a sparsely populated place, without services like water and electricity, where people lived like a hundred years ago, because where you have civilization, you'll find priests. He describes shooting down German planes from the beach of Dunkirk, surviving over a hundred attempts on his life, and losing an arm to a jaguar attack in the jungle. He is, as far as we know, the last living survivor of the Derudi Column, a determined band of anarchist soldiers he joined as a teenager to help hold the forces of Spanish fascism at bay. Garcia Barone's colorful life traces back to the first years of anarchists fighting fascism, a long and equally colorful tradition that continues to this day.
Benito Mussolini came to power in Italy in 1922. In his early years, he seemed an unlikely candidate to found a political movement that would become the arch-enemy of anarchists and radicals across the world for the next century. In fact, his father Alessandro had joined Bakunin's Anarchist International in the 1870s. As a young man, Mussolini continued the family passion for radical politics, becoming editor of the Socialist Party's newspaper Avanti, and even translating some of Kropotkin's works from French into Italian. But when World War I broke out, he joined the Italian army, and, turning his back on his egalitarian convictions, combined strands of socialist thought with militarism and nationalism into what would become known as fascism. Some of the intellectual currents within radical politics in the early 20th century took root among the first fascists. Many admired French anarcho-syndicalist Georges Sorel, author of the widely influential 1908 book Reflections on Violence, which theorized that the grand myth of the general strike could catalyze violent rebellion and lead to revolution. Likewise, the ideas of insurrectionary socialist Louis-Auguste Blanqui formed a central part of Mussolini's notion of socialism within the fascist project. The valorization of violence and direct action proved influential on many fascists, though they would adopt those tactical principles towards consolidating hierarchical power rather than dismantling it. As Mussolini and then Hitler came to power, and fascist movements grew in various countries, radical and reactionary forces increasingly polarized across Europe. In Spain, when military dictator Primo de Rivera fell from power in 1930, the Republican government faced a tug-of-war between the fascist phalangists and a popular front of socialists and communists, while anarchist rebellions flared around the peninsula. In 1936, after the Popular Front gained control of the government, General Francisco Franco participated in a coup and, with the support of Italy and Germany, invaded the country. The initial coup attempt was defeated in Barcelona by the armed populace, and anarchist revolution soon broke out through much of Catalonia and parts of Aragon. In July 1936, an anarchist militia organized by Buenaventura de Ruti set out from Barcelona towards Zaragoza, retaking territory from the fascists, and collectivizing property throughout the countryside. In this atmosphere of fear and possibility, anarchists and radicals from all over Europe and across the Atlantic arrived to support the fight against fascism. The Derudi column attracted American and Canadian members of the IWW, alongside radical refugees from fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Louis-Émile Cotin, who had attempted to assassinate French President Clemenceau in 1919, died fighting with the column in 1937, while French philosopher Simone Weil joined in as well. In Valencia, another anarchist militia formed called the Iron Column, which liberated prisoners, destroyed judicial records, and fought without a traditional military hierarchy. Ultimately, the anarchist militias were defeated by a combination of fascist military strength, lack of supplies, and the treacherous betrayals of communists whose loyalty to Stalin's Soviet regime trumped both social revolution and military unity. Many of the survivors of the militias fled across the Pyrenees after the Civil War and joined the French resistance, or plotted guerrilla attacks against the Franco regime. One of the most famous of these Spanish maquis was Francisco Sabate Llopart, whose exploits made him public enemy number one of the dictatorship until his death in combat in 1960. Over 15 years of mayhem, Sabaté and his comrades conducted raids, assassinated fascist officials, robbed banks, and evaded capture against overwhelming odds. 
Anarchists across Europe and beyond supported the guerrilla fighters and took solidarity actions against Spanish targets. Scottish anarchist and future Angry Brigade arrestee Stuart Christie was sent to prison in Spain as a teenager for transporting explosives to be used in an assassination plot against Franco. Other survivors from the anti-fascist militias fled across the Atlantic to Latin America, helping catalyze anarchist organizing from Mexico to Argentina. Some, like Antonio Garcia Barón, ended up living out their anarchist values far from civilization, keeping the dream of freedom alive in the remote jungles of the Amazon basin. The anarchists who continued the fight against Franco knew that the end of World War II had not meant the end of fascism. And as new fascist movements arose in Britain, Germany, and beyond in the 1970s and 80s, anarchists arose again to face the old threat in new faces. Our anti-fascist struggles today stem from these heroic guerrillas and bandits and uncontrollables. Although the social revolution they tasted did not survive, their determined resistance and thirst for freedom live on. We touched briefly in the last episode on the way that fascists have capitalized on free speech discourse to legitimize their organizing and attempt to incur backlash against militant anti-fascists, often successfully. Anarchists have historically fought for free speech, not because the First Amendment says so, but because we fight to defend freedom against all state repression. Yet today this discourse is turned against us in an effort to incapacitate resistance. This puts us between a rock and a hard place risking either alienating potential allies among civil libertarians or allowing fascists to spread their hate unimpeded. In response to this conundrum, contributors to Rolling Thunder No. 9 wrote an article titled Not Free Speech But Freedom Itself, exploring the politics of free speech in the context of anti-fascism. Included alongside the article was a free speech FAQ, intended as a tool for anti-fascist organizers responding to common myths and misconceptions. We've revised it slightly and offered it here in that spirit. We hope that all of you listeners out there will take it, update or revise it as you see fit, and use it when speaking to media and potential allies in your own struggles against fascism. Stopping fascists from speaking makes you just as bad as them. Failing to stop fascists from speaking that is, giving them the opportunity to organize to impose their agenda on the rest of us, makes you as bad as them. If you care about freedom, don't stand idly by while people mobilize to take it away. Shouldn't we just ignore them? They want attention, and if we give it to them, we're letting them win. Actually, fascists usually don't want to draw attention to their organizing. They do most of it in secret, fearing, correctly, that an outraged public will shut them down. They only organize public events to show potential recruits that they have power, and to try to legitimize their views as part of the political spectrum. By publicly disrupting and humiliating fascists, we make it clear to them and their potential supporters that they are not in control and can't wield the power that they glorify. Ignoring fascists only allows them to organize unhindered. A dangerous mistake. Better we shut them down once and for all. The best way to defeat fascism is to let them express their views so that everyone can see how ignorant they are. We can refute them more effectively with ideas than with force. 
People don't become fascists simply because they're persuaded by their ideas. Fascism claims to offer power to those who feel threatened by shifting social and economic realities. The fact that their analysis of these shifts are ignorant misses the point. Do we need to cite examples of how dumb ideas have proved massively popular throughout history? From Italy to Germany to streets around the world today, fascists haven't gained strength through rational argument, but through organizing to wield power at the expense of others. To counter this, we can't just argue them. We have to prevent them from organizing by any means necessary. We can debate their ideas all day long, but if we don't prevent them from building the capacity to make them reality, it won't matter. Only popular self-defense, not simply debate, has succeeded in stopping fascism. Neo-Nazis are irrelevant. Institutionalized racism poses the real threat today, not the extremists at the fringe. Our society's institutions are indeed deeply racist, and our organizing must challenge and dismantle them. But the visibility of neo-Nazis and fringe fascists enables other right-wing groups to frame themselves as moderates, legitimizing their racist and xenophobic positions and the systems of power and privilege they defend. Taking a stand against fascists is an essential step towards discrediting the structures and values at the root of institutionalized racism. Plus, as we heard last episode, suit and tie fascists are infiltrating positions of influence in academia and politics, giving them dangerous power to advance racist policies on an institutional level. And fascists around the world are still terrorizing and murdering people. It's both naive and disrespectful to their victims to minimize the reality of fascist violence. Fascists act directly to carry out their agenda rather than limiting themselves to representative democracy. So even small numbers can be disproportionately dangerous, making it crucial to deal with them swiftly. Free speech means protecting everyone's right to speak, including people you don't agree with. How would you like it if you had an unpopular opinion and other people were trying to silence you? We oppose fascists because of what they do, not what they say. We're not opposed to free speech. We're opposed to enacting an agenda of hate and terror. We have no power to censor them. They continue to publish hate literature in print and on the internet. Their public events don't exist to express views, but to build the power they need to enforce their hatred. The government and police have never protected everyone's free speech equally, and never will. They systematically repress views and actions that challenge existing power inequalities. They spend hundreds of thousands of public dollars on riot police and helicopters to defend a KKK rally, but for a radical demonstration, the same police will be there to stop it, not protect it. Just look at the evictions of the Occupy encampments, attacks on Earth First actions, or countless other examples. Of course anarchists don't like being silenced by the state, but we don't want the state to define and manage our freedom either. The First Amendment covers what laws Congress shall or shall not enact. It's up to us to determine what we need to do to defend ourselves. Unlike the ACLU, whose supposed defense of freedom leads them to support the KKK and neo-Nazis, we support self-defense and self-determination above all. What's the purpose of free speech if not to foster a world free from oppression? Fascists oppose this vision. Thus, we oppose fascism by any means necessary. Trying to suppress their voices will backfire by generating interest in them. Resistance to fascism doesn't increase interest in fascist views. 
If anything, liberals mobilizing to defend fascists on free speech grounds increases interest in their views by conferring legitimacy on them. This plays directly into their organizing goals, allowing them to drive a wedge between their opponents using free speech as a smokescreen. By tolerating racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and xenophobia, so-called free speech advocates are complicit in the acts of terror that fascist organizing makes possible. They have rights like everybody else. No one has the right to threaten our community with violence. Likewise, we reject the right of the government and police, who have more in common with fascists than they do with us, to decide for us when fascists have crossed the line from merely expressing themselves into posing an immediate threat. We will not abdicate our freedom to judge when and how to defend ourselves. As anarchists, we know we cannot find justice under the state and capitalism. Instead, we seek vengeance. We are anarchists who wish to communicate socially, but also realize that the state and capitalism will never just disappear. And that time to In our last episode, we discussed the murder of anti-fascist rapper Pavlos Fisas in Greece by members of the fascist Golden Dawn Party. On this episode's mugshot, we have an extra special feature to share, an in-depth interview with Dimitris, a member of the Occupied London Collective, which issues first-hand reports and insightful analysis on the unfolding crisis in Greece from an anarchist perspective. Dimitris frames the rise of the Golden Dawn within the emergence of neoliberal capitalism in Europe illuminating the role of fascist movements as a parastate force on hand for governments to use to help impose austerity measures. He challenges the narrative that anarchists and fascists are both responding to disillusionment with government and economic crisis, and describes anti-fascist resistance on the streets of Athens and beyond. If you'd like to follow along with a text version of the interview, you can find it on our website, crimethink.com podcast, by following the link for full transcript. I'm here today with Demetrius from the Occupied London Collective. Demetrius, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much uh, for, for organizing that. I, I am Demetrius Dalakoglu from Occupied London Collective, which is a collective which started in 2007 in London uh, as a magazine, uh, a collective we were publishing an anarchist magazine called Voices of Resistance from Occupied London, or the short name was Occupied London. Uh, and we, to December of 2008, we focused most of our energy into the blog from the Greek streets, which is translating in English uh, th- uh, news from Greece, from the streets of Greece, from an anarchist perspective. And now we just released a fifth uh, last issue. Previously, we just published also a book called Revolt and Crisis uh, in Greece. And uh, nowadays, we're just preparing to move towards a more and more inclusive and a new form of, of digital information, uh, information and propaganda spreading. Fascism in Greece appears to have expanded from a small but violent extreme right to a very powerful social and political force in the last few years. Why has the Golden Dawn been able to grow so much recently? The main 
reason is that there is money, right? A big amount of money came into Golden Dawn coffers. Golden Dawn, until 2009, was a, a marginal group receiving about 0.2% in the elections, in the national elections. And by 2012, had grown to a party which received 7% of the vote. Uh, what happened during that period is pretty straightforward. Phenomenally, lots of money came and from a party, a marginal party of two, three local offices, grew to a party which has over 50 local branches and offices all around Greece. Uh, obviously, you can understand that in order to achieve something like this, you need a lot of money. Um, and of course, there is a lot of propaganda being involved. There, are, there is all this activity of Golden Dawn, which was, for example, soup kitchens or food giving, not charity, in fact, uh, which again requires money. And finally, there were people in Golden Dawn who were getting paid uh, for the job they were doing in the party, which included racist attacks, I'm guessing, <laughs> as part of their duties. So actually, we need we talk about the big amount of money. The other thing which we have to bear in mind is that in Greece there is a tradition of extreme right-wing groups employed by the state authorities in order to suppress the far left. This is a very old story. It starts already in the 1930s with the fascist dictatorship of Metaxas, who actually Golden Dawn loves, and goes on all the way through after the Greek Civil War, which ended in 1949. It is really glorified during the dictatorship between 1967 and 1974. And it goes on, you know, post-dictatorial period. Again, there are these extreme right-wing reserves, which are just available to the state in order to suppress any time that it's considered that there is a threat from the far left or from anarchists in our case more recently and so on. So remember, it is not accidental that Golden Dawn rises a lot after the revolt of 2008. You know, there are some historical links there which can be done. There was a major uh, revolt anti-governmental revolt, anti-state revolt, if you want, a revolt against which had great potentialities, gave a lot of dynamism to the radical movement, you know, to the antagonistic movement in Greece. And suddenly, you have neo-Nazis emerging there as the fear factor against these new social and political forces. So I think that's the reason that uh, Gotodon has, has grown up the last few years. It seems like fascist movements are also on the rise in France, Serbia, Hungary, and elsewhere. How does the Golden Dawn fit into the context of fascism across Europe? There is a wider transformation in the form of European governance. Remember, we have a, an extreme neoliberalism, an extreme version of capitalism implicated to the global south for several decades. Soon, uh, in early 90s, we have a very similar regime of extreme neoliberalism being implemented to Eastern Europe, to former socialist states. Now, we have a very, very similar extreme neoliberalism, extreme capitalism, being implicated to the periphery of Western Europe, a Europe which, after Second World War, was not socialist. So now, we have the expansion towards that direction, which would be Greece, Italy, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, the entire European periphery within which this, this extreme neoliberalism requires, needs, a violent apparatus. The passage to the periphery soon implies a passage of that go form of governance, of that new 
new economic and political political economy to the rest of Europe, Western Europe, to Britain, to France, to Scandinavia even, you know, I mean, you see all, all these principles of social state, social provisions, you know, all the Keynesianist post-war model vanishing in Europe, all around Europe, especially in the periphery which suffers from so on capitalist crisis, but also in the Western Europe. In order to implement such a system, you need a terrorist apparatus. You need an apparatus which will not obey to law. Because, you know, you can't get the police on the street start shooting protesters. But you can have paramilitants. You, you can have parastate, which is a very interesting concept, right? I mean, in Greek language, already since the, uh, the 50s, even before probably, there was the concept of parastate, which, you know, it's like paramilitant. It was a second state, or an extension of the state, which was used, you know, right. So fundamentally, this is the reason we see the rise of the extreme right all around Europe. Because neoliberalism, because capitalism, in order to be implemented, it needs a force, a violent force, a violent apparatus to be out there, to threaten anybody who potentially would protest, who would threaten anybody who might be anti-capitalist, to threaten anybody who might be anti-fascist. And you know, there is, you know, fascism. In Europe is like it's something which is you know it's really threatening. It's something which governed most of the countries of Europe in the 1930s, which is just two generations ago. It, it is something which you know dropped the continent into a war. Uh, millions of people died due to fascism. And actually, when you bring fascism again in Europe, you force all this part of the society which would be otherwise anti-capitalist or anti-state or a great part of this part of great part of the society to somehow try to trust against the state because suddenly if you're facing Nazis or fascists a right-wing state and a liberal state looks like great option right you're like okay people may be starving people may be committing suicide because they don't have to eat people may not be have become homeless but this is better than having a Nazi in the government so actually it is really helpful in many in many ways the rise of the extreme right and this rise of the extreme right in its country, it has its own individual history, right? And exactly that, that tradition is there. It was there to, to set, set the roots of the extreme rights in, in these countries, which are mobilized over time historically when it's necessary for the capitalism to elevate um, its form, right? To, therefore, a new form of extreme capitalism to emerge. So this is the situation, I think. That's why we see a rise of the extreme right. It's something which is necessary at the moment for the system. How do you think the murder of Pavlos Fisas and the backlash against the Golden Dawn recently is going to affect fascism in Greece and the struggle against it? The murder of Pavlos Fisas was an escalation in the extreme right-wing violence. What do I mean by that? The neo-Nazis on the streets, so far, were killing migrants. They were beating up migrants and people who were, you know, some of the most um, vulnerable and some of the most invisible, also socially. The attack to an anti-fascist who happens to hold a Greek passport, fundamentally, is just the, an escalation, which made very clear to anybody at all, to anybody who is even slightly anti-fascist, that 
actually, but it's a matter of time to come for, for the next ones. Right? First, they started from the most vulnerable part of the society, which had the least uh, possibilities to somehow exist, because most of the victims of the neo-Nazi violence on the street are people who, you know, lack documents, so they, they cannot even go to hospital because they don't have the legal documents. They, can, they cannot go to the police department, they cannot, they have limited potential of defending themselves against such a violence. Now, as soon as you see the escalation going, for example, openly against left people, for example, now, it is a, an obvious escalation that caused a lot of, a lot of changes in the way the fascists uh, is perceived in Greece. First of all, we show some of the largest anti-fascist demonstrations and protests we have ever seen. They were very dynamic, right? We saw attacks to Golden Dawn offices in Athens, the headquarters of Golden Dawn, protected by the police, of course, right? And protected, I mean, with under heavy police support, in fact. Uh, uh, because, you know, you had big anti-fascist demonstrations in uh, Nicaea, in Geratini, uh, which is the area of Athens where Pablo's Fisas was killed. And actually, you, you, saw, you saw during this protest, neo-Nazis collaborating together with the riot police, attacking the anti-fascist demonstrations. So, you, you know, we are in a situation where, where things polarized, polarized more, more than before. It was more and more evident that Nazis are ready, actually, to start the pogroms, you know, the much more wider pogroms, which, you know, they already had started like, against migrants, but now they were ready to go for, to start going for anything else. So this rang a bell, right? This woke up all these all these forces, anti-fascist forces in society, which so far had been shocked from the rise of, of fascism, had been shocked from the economic measurements, from the form of capitalism, which was killing people fundamentally and mass massively. And now they woke up and they reacted. Obviously, that was something which had a catalytic power in the form of the anti-fascist movement. Of course, suddenly the state intervenes and arrests the leadership of Golden Dawn. Now, there are a lot of questions behind such an action. Why suddenly the state wants to arrest its extreme right apparatus, right? Why suddenly they hate them? Why they were so useful to them so far? There are a lot of interpretations there. Some of the interpretations could be that because anti-austerity and union movements and anti-fascist movements start rising after the assassination. So you had a situation where actually the society was starting boiling, right? It was, was close to one of these mini-boiling uh, points, right? The, the, the state sees this big anti-far-right demonstrations. Now, remember, the Greek state at the moment is governed by a right government, which is the, is the most extreme right government that, the, that Greece has seen after the end of dictatorship, right? Pretty straightforward. So, obviously, they were like, okay, this is anti-right demonstrations. This could easily escalate and go far, and probably that's why they intervened. So yeah, I think that it is really, really, we need to, you know, we need to wait and see what is the plan there and what's the political plan there to be done. Because it doesn't mean that racist attacks or neo-Nazi attacks vanished because some of the leaders in Golden Dawn were arrested. The neo-Nazis still are on the streets eh? and they, will, they are an available reserve if the state will need violent apparatus. I mean, as I told you before, the very next day of assassination, during the anti-fascist demonstrations, neo 
slavery. Actually, you have a, almost a government which adopts a lot of fascist logics and has a lot of extreme right-wing members in a way reconfiguring the right-wing base political spectrum in some way. We don't know what kind of reconfiguration they're trying to do though. It seems like some of the conditions that fascists have capitalized on, the economic instability, the social unrest, distrust of government, these are also some of the conditions that have led the anarchist movement in Greece to become one of the most powerful in the world. How do anarchists set themselves apart from fascists in how they respond to the conflicts in Greek society? I think that's a wrong interpretation. The extreme right wing in Greece uh, has a very long history. While uh, Greek anarchism is something which starts in the 70s, mostly it goes in the 80s, 90s, and so on, right? So there were there were two very different apparatuses. While on the one hand, extreme right adopts this discourse to pretend that it's anti-systemic, or at the same time gets you know a lot of analysts, uh, especially journalists, seem to adopt such idea and say, oh. The people who support what they're doing because they're anti-systemic, it's a very wrong interpretation. Uh, the actual hmm. Golden Dawn, the actual neo-Nazis, are not anti-systemic in any way. Uh, Golden Dawn, at the same time, has other kind of parliamentary activity, which is very systemic. For example, they support the richest and most powerful class in Greek society, which are the shipping companies, right? The uh, maritime companies, the ship owners, actually, right? who are really, really powerful and uh, in Greece they are actually the richest people and, you know, more or less, they control every single government in the country. Actually, you have the Golden Dawn, which is a small party supporting the most systemic and most powerful part of the society within the parliament and, for example, supporting the government when the government wants to promote more tax exception for, the, for these corporations. So you see, it is, it is, we're in a way where Golden Dawn is advertising and a systemic profile, and a lot of people reproduce such ideas, oh, it's anti-systemic. The people who support Golden Dawn are people who have been, in a way, disappointed by the state. I don't think so, this is exactly true. I think that the situation with Golden Dawn is, is okay, it's complex, mixed. We talk about 400,000 voters who voted for that party and who actually are um, are very much collectively responsible for for the assassinations that Golden Dawn members commit in the last two or three years, right? Uh, especially after the election, for sure, you know, people voted and knew what they were voting. But I think then let's bear in mind that just recently I was reading that uh, all these surveys, you know, which are there, 25% of, uh, of the voters of Golden Dawn identify with neo-Nazis. They say, yeah, we are neo-Nazists. Right, 25 people percent of the people who vote for Golden Dawn. So it is not exactly people who are disappointed. There was a fascist element of the Greek society, which Greek society has throughout its history, who gathered and found an expression through that party. Before they were spread in various other parties, right? Mostly to the right wing. But now they found their expression perfectly to that party. Before Golden Dawn, there was another extreme right wing party. There was Laos. The People's Orthodox Alert, right, which was around for 10 years and was extreme right as well. It was more populist extreme right 
What kinds of organizing and actions have Greek anarchists been taking against fascists? There have been for a long time anti-fascist activities taken by the Greek anarchists all these years. Right? One of the reasons that Golden Dawn was tiny and marginal in the past is because Greek anti-fascists, mostly anarchists, were actually resisting them on the street. For example, if, if Golden Dawn would uh, organize an event a demonstration, a march, whatever, on a public space, Greek anti-fascists would go and occupy the public space uh, well in advance and wouldn't allow the Nazis to come over. Since the rise of Golden Dawn, though, you see a very, very explicit collaboration of police forces with the neo-Nazis in support of the neo-Nazis. For example, when the motorbike anti-fascist uh, demonstrations uh, started in uh, September of 2012, two months after the elections. What was that? That was, you know, 20, 30 motorbikes with anti-fascists uh, who would, um, uh, you know, ride around the areas of Athens where fascists were attacking migrants. So through their presence there, in fact, they were making clear that migrants are not by themselves, that obviously there is anti-fascist force, anti-fascist solidarity towards the migrants in the present in the area, but at the same time, it was a an anti-fascist presence which was, you know, was there to stop a fascist attack. So as soon as this, this kind of demonstration started going, uh, police attacked, and police arrested uh, all the participants to one of the big anti-fascist motor patrols, so-called motor motor demonstrations, in late September. And the next day, in the court of Athens, they attacked to the group who came in solidarity to the arrested anti-fascists and arrested some more people. And, you know, just one month later, the police attacked and evicted uh, the most historical, the two most historical squads in the center of Athens and a less historical but equally important squad which came after the December revolt, Skaramaga uh, squad, this is the newest, Villa Malias and Lela Karajanis are the two older, older ones. Now we talk about December 2012 and January 2013. Attacked and evicted these squads very close to the area uh, which are located in the areas of Athens where neo Nazis are active. In fact, dismantling 
this area and opening up the way to neo-Nazis to be active on the streets. It was a very explicit collaboration between the current government and the neo-Nazis in terms of everyday life on the street. So obviously there were certain limitations in many ways to the actions which you could do because you would be arrested and crushed by the state immediately. By the way, it is really important to, to bear in mind that when they attacked to the, in September of 2012, when they attacked to the anti-fascist um, uh, motor demonstration, they arrested people who were tortured, right, with that in mind, by the police, who were coming in and taking photos of, of the arrested and would say, okay, don't worry, we're going to send that to Golden Dawn. And now we have your address, we have your name, we see who, who is now, you know, a clever one. And then remember, Pablo Spisas, this September, one year later, was assassinated, was stabbed to death uh, in presence of police officers. Actually, there were plenty of police officers present when the fascists, were, 20 fascists, were attacking to one person, killing him, and they didn't intervene, right? So we're in a situation where there is a very extensive collaboration. So we need to bear that in mind when we try to, to think what kind of activities take place on the streets of Athens. The other kind of activity besides the motorbike, uh, you know, anti-fascist demonstration, were the proper anti-fascist marches all around Athens. So you would have several hundreds of people marching on the streets of Athens with anti-fascist slogans, anti-fascist graffiti, anti-fascist flyers, without announcing, without preparing, without making clear when they do that, they were just marching around Athens, making anti-fascist presence felt on the streets. The other thing is that there were anti-fascist demonstrations, which were bigger anti-fascist demonstrations taking place on the streets of Athens, uh, like, for example, the ones which took place in Petralona. Petralona is another district of Athens where a Pakistani migrant was killed, was stabbed to death, out of the blue, by two neo-Nazis, right, uh, a few months ago. And again, there were big demonstrations taking place there, and there were all these anti-fascist activities being active on the public sphere of the Greek cities. Uh, remember, again, some of the major anti-fascist infrastructures were the squads, and squads were evicted not only in Athens, but in Patras, in Ioannina, in Thessaloniki, in various cities of, of the country, the squads were being attacked. Precisely, one of the reasons they were attacked was because there were major anti-fascist infrastructures. So there was, if you want, a conflict, a major conflict, which was taking place on the streets of Athens, a major battle, a major conflict was going on, on the streets of the Greek cities, on the one side were the neo-Nazis and the police collaborating against the anti-fascist social forces. Remember, Panagiotaros, an MP of Golden Dawn, a major, uh, one of the vice leaders of Golden Dawn, was declaring his interview that they're prepared for civil war and that they are prepared in any way to against the anarchists, right, and the migrants. And I remember now that the state, the police, pretends, or perhaps not, to dismantle the Golden Dawn, they find a lot of weapons. There are machine guns, there are rifles, there are weapons. They were actually armed. Right? You were dealing with a properly fascist Nazi party, Nazi forces which were armed. They were having military training and were creating paramilitary forces. 
So obviously, we talk about something which is aiming to kill people and keep actually kill plenty of people with knives mostly, but they were prepared to get to be you know to start an armed an armed attack, which was counting insurrectionary attack, right? Everybody knew that you know migrants are the first the first victims, and soon they will come for the anti-fascist anarchists. So obviously there were there were a lot of activities taking place on public against the fascists. But remember, we're dealing now with a Greek society which is completely shocked from extreme austerity. You have to put everything in a context. We are dealing with circumstances which are extreme, very quickly changed, and actually with circumstances that any kind of activity was, you know, great big effort, was put a lot of effort into being organized, right? Because there were a lot of problems that people faced, both politically, the anarchist was under attack, uh, Greek anarchism, you know, anarchism of Greece, was constantly under attack the last year, and at the same time with a lot of personal problems which had to do with austerity, with, with, with poverty, in fact, which is involved. So we have to bear all these things in mind. Huh? Can you offer any advice from the Greek context for anarchists who are fighting fascism elsewhere in the world? Episodes thus far, our reviews on the chopping block have focused on books and written texts. But this time around, we're switching it up a bit and looking at some films that relate to our anti-fascist theme. Today we've got a special guest feature from Ricky Flowers, 
about three terrific movies that tell stories of resistance to fascism at different moments throughout the 20th century. The American public imagination is captivated by the destruction of fascists. It has become a founding myth that we saved the world from fascism and made it safe for liberal bourgeois democracy, and in so doing became the greatest superpower in history. This myth has given us hundreds of films about destroying Nazis, and some are excellent. Chaplin's Great Dictator, Sturgis's Great Escape, and most recently Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Here are three excellent anti-fascist films from outside of the U.S. that you might not have heard of. En France, le Front National n'est pas en reste. Mais d'autres partis encore plus radicaux vont aussi trouver un terrain fertile chez les skinheads. The streets of France in the 1980s were overrun with fascists. Immigrants, anarchists, and punks slunk through the markets and subways of Paris, cowed by the threat of skinheads who terrorized them with the support of the police. Then a courageous band of punks turned their bomber jackets inside out and began fighting back. La rue est un est un, un terrain. Hein, au même titre que les urnes et nous on est des gens qui avons vécu dans la rue et qui par conséquent l'avons à cœur et, et ne, ne comptons pas leur With breathtaking first-hand stories of vicious street fights the documentary Antifa Chasseur de Skin shows how roving bands of anarchist brawlers pop Zulu gangs and others hunted skinheads and beat back fascists from the streets undermining their social and institutional power Carving a space for immigrants and anarchist politics in public space, the Red Warriors, Ruddy Foxes, and Ducky Boys freed the streets and cut short a fascist movement based in youth subculture. Unfortunately, the film has no room for women, and this is a glaring omission of what we can assume was at least 50% of the anti-fascist current in France. In contrast, Libertarias is a 1996 film about Spanish anarcho-feminist militia Mujeres Libres, who in 1936 fought not only the fascists on the other side of the trenches and barricades, but the patriarchal views of their male comrades. Viewers should be aware that the film contains graphic depictions of sexual violence in its final scenes. The film shows rowdy sex workers, stern feminists, chaste ex-nuns, and lusty mystics alike, leading an armed struggle against fascism and for a utopia of their own creation. Somos anarquistas, somos libertarias, pero también somos mujeres y queremos hacer nuestra revolución. No queremos que nos la hagan ellos. No queremos que la lucha se organice a la medida del elemento masculino, porque si dejamos que sea así, estaremos como siempre jodidas. Prague, under Nazi occupation, developed an urban legend of a terrifying criminal who hid in the shadows and jumped over fences, trains, and buildings to thwart capture by the Nazi police. The Springman, or Perak, became a hero in the 1946 animated short The Chimney Sweep, which depicts him as a black-clad, sofa-spring-shoe-adorned proletarian mischief-maker who wreaks havoc on Nazi sympathizers. 
You'll cheer as Perak bounces over, around, and through the robotic occupying SS army and local snitches in his balaclava fashioned out of a sock. As a founding myth, the destruction of Nazism in favor of the bourgeois republic hides a fatal flaw that actual resistance to fascism has taught us. Fascists are the vanguard of the status quo, a corrective measure that those who benefit from the way society is currently structured employ when liberal bourgeois democracy does not deliver them wealth and power efficiently. The only way to ensure that fascism does not re-emerge is by overthrowing this society and toppling the pillars that fascists attempt to guard. White supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and the state. You can stream The Chimney Sweep and Antifa Chasseur de Skin online via links we've got posted on our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. Libertarius, you'll have to find on your own. And now we'll conclude this episode with next week's news, our roundup of exciting anarchist happenings coming up soon around the world. And there are tons of things going on. Thanks to everyone who wrote in with tips on events we should mention. Keep them coming to podcast at crimethink.com. So, Clara, what's on the calendar? Well, on Wednesday, October 23rd, The Prisoner Strike Support Network is calling a day of action against the Canadian government's recent legislation to cut prisoner wages, to show solidarity with prisoners across the country who have been on strike since early October. Actions will take place in Winnipeg and other cities. October 24th marks the 75th anniversary of the first minimum wage in the U.S., 25 cents an hour in 1938. And in commemoration, the People's Power Assembly has declared Raise Minimum Wage Day, with demonstrations in Baltimore and probably other cities. Personally, I favor the IWW's line about abolishing the wage system, but angry poor people on strike and in the streets is definitely a good thing. As we mentioned earlier, the protest against the conference of the suit-and-tie fascist National Policy Institute takes place at Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. on the 26th. And if you're in D.C. on the 26th, also check out the Rally Against Mass Surveillance, organized by the StopWatching.us website. It's pretty liberal in its politics, but privacy and anti-surveillance is a hot issue right now, and anarchists should make ourselves visible in this resistance. That same weekend will also feature the East Bay Anarchist Book Fair in Oakland, California, as well as the Houston Anarchist Book Fair in Houston, Texas. On the 27th, Marcellus Shale Earth First kicks off a week of workshops, trainings, camping, hiking, and a mass forest mobilization on November 1st at the beautiful waters of Rock Run in northeastern Pennsylvania to defend the Loyal Sock Forest against fracking. And the beginning of November has a flurry of activity, too. On the 1st through 3rd in Tucson, Arizona, the Alliance for Global Justice will host the Tear Down the Walls National Gathering, intended to build links between a wide variety of radical struggles. Info is at afgj.org. 
On the 2nd through 4th, the Black Petrograd Festival takes place in St. Petersburg, Russia. A three-day anarchist gathering with a book fair, talks, discussions, a radical history tour, a concert, and more. And a bit closer to home the same weekend, there's an anarchist book fair in Austin, Texas. And finally, some political prisoner birthdays to share. On the 21st of October, Edward Goodman Africa from the Move 9. If you want to learn more about their case, we've got a link up on our website to a documentary about them you can watch online. And on the 1st of November, Ed Poindexter, an activist with the National Committee to Combat Fascism, a Black Panther Party group that fought police brutality and was targeted by Cointelpro and framed for the murder of a cop. So that's it for this episode. This podcast is a project of the CrimeThink Ex-Workers Collective. Thanks so much to Dimitri for speaking with us, and to Underground Reverie for the music, and to all of you for listening. You can always get in touch with us by sending an email to podcast.crimethink.com, leaving feedback on iTunes, or calling 202-59-NO-WORK. That is 202-596-6975. As the flyer for the anti-fascist demonstration in Leipzig later this month says, remembering means fighting. See you next time.